0: Thank you. Uh, my name is Toby Dodge, and I'm the director of the Middle East Center, also the Kuwait Chair at London School of Economics. Um, and it gives me uh, great pleasure, uh, more than usual pleasure, to introduce uh, Rohan to you today, uh, partly because he's a friend and a, a very cherished colleague, but more importantly because he's going to talk about his book, Nixon, Kissinger and the Shah which was selected by the Financial Times as one of the 2014 books of the summer. And before we go into the detail about why this is such an amazing academic, why we're so lucky to have an LSE, I must say that afterwards, not only will there be free glasses of wine, but the book itself, that, that Rohan will have dazzled you about the contents of over the next 45 minutes, will be sold at a £10 discount. So don't all rush now, there's plenty for everyone as we go out. But more importantly, this book is adapted from Roham's thesis at the University of Oxford, which was also awarded both the Foundation for Iranian Studies Dissertation Prize and the Oxford University Parve Memorial Prize. We we know where we're going with this. He's currently a very ambitious man. is working on a second book, Iran's Cold War, uh, an international history of Iran's role in the global struggle between the capitalist West and the communist East from the 40s to the 80s. And even more impressively, before Roham joined the LSE, he worked on the strategic planning staff, in the office of the UN Secretary General, Kofi Annan, and was a visiting fellow at the University of Tehran. So I think we have, we're in treat. Uh, I think a tour de force of Iranian history, of Iranian American history, then a glass of wine, and then you can buy the book at a 10 pound discount. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Rohan. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much. Um, First, I just have to say thank you very much to Toby and to the Middle East Centre for putting on this event. It's, you know, um, it's a real pleasure. This, this moment is a really special moment for me. And um, those of you that are PhD students, you know, I hope you have such a moment because, you know, when you spend, you know, a good part of your life working on something and then it actually, there is something actually to show for it at the end, and you get to celebrate it in a place like this with people like Toby Lodge. Uh, it's quite a privilege. So uh, thank you, Toby, and thank you to the MEC. Um, so uh, I, I wrote this book as a labour of love, basically. Um, I didn't really write it for any good intellectual or academic reason. I really wrote it just because it interested me and because I thought it would be fun to spend... Five or six years of my life working on it. And <laughs> um, it was, it really was a joy, and I miss it. And I honestly, you know, that those were, in many ways, I now realize um, some of the best years of my life. Um, and I want to just thank a couple of people first, um, uh, my supervisor, Louise Fawcett in Oxford, um, uh, Omar uh, uh and Avi Schleim. Uh, who really were my teachers uh, at at Oxford, Um, uh, and Roger Lewis, who was one one of my uh, examiners. Uh, And I wouldn't have been able to finish the book, really, if it wasn't for the generosity of the LSE. I I came here before I finished the book, and they were really, really nice to me in the Department of International History. They really didn't load me with a lot of teaching and a lot of work and gave me the time uh, to be able to actually produce this book. So I'm really grateful... Uh, to the Department of International History, especially to uh, Nigel Ashton and Arnie Westard, um, who really looked after me really well in the last um, few years. So with that being said, um, the book. So we're about 35 years uh, away from the Iranian Revolution. Hopefully this works. Yeah, And of course, it's quite natural that the image of Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, the last Shah of Iran, is shaped above all, above everything else by the revolution, by his ultimate failure, by his decline and fall. Um, And this is the enduring image of the Shah for many Iranians. This is the last picture taken of the Shah on Iranian soil. He's about to board uh, the plane that will fly him into exile, and an Iranian uh, soldier throws himself Uh, at the Shah, kisses his feet, begs him not to leave the country, and you can see the Shah in tears. And this is the image of of the Shah in history, really. The the fallen uh, despot. And uh, he really is remembered, uh, actually quite interestingly, both in Iran and in the the West, as this kind of megalomaniac who uh, uh, was a loyal American client um, during the Cold War. Now, I'm, I'm an Iranian myself. I was born in 1979, just after the revolution. So, I, naturally, it fascinated me. Naturally, I wanted to understand who this person was, What did he? You know, wh- what is his place in history. I gravitated towards that. And the more I looked into it, the more I read, the more I engaged with the primary sources, I realized that this image of the Shah is really a caricature and is really an unfair... Uh, legacy for him, as far as his place in in world history is concerned. And so I decided I'm going to write uh, a revisionist account. Um, And I'm going to try to uh, uh, give him his fair due uh, uh, in history. Uh, And I've tried to write it in a a dispassionate and objective way. Um, I haven't tried to write it from a monarchist point of view or anything like that. Um, I'm quite clear in the book about the terrible human rights abuses that occurred under the Shah, and quite explicit about the corruption of the Shah's regime. But what I was really fascinated with, and what I was really interested in, is is the Shah's place on the world stage. The Shah is an international actor. And the Iran of the 1970s, which is a very different Iran to the one that we see today. And some of you in this audience might remember that Iran. might remember the headlines, might remember the Shah in on British television, you know. um, But it was a very different country. uh, and had a very different place um, in the world. And what I really discovered was that the Shah was very much, in the 1970s, an autonomous actor. He he was far from a pliant instrument of American foreign policy. He was actually a commanding international figure who played a very important role in the international politics of the 1970s. Um, And what I think I found most surprising is that there is a great deal of continuity between the Shah's foreign policy and that of his successors, that of the Islamic Republic. Uh, the, uh, the language has changed, the, uh, 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 it's clothed differently, but the substance, the way that Iran's interests uh, are, are perceived, the ambitions, uh, there is a surprising degree of um, continuity. Now there are significant differences in Talk about that, but um, you know, Iran is a very old country uh, with a very long history, and and really, it shouldn't be that surprising for us that there are elements of continuity in Iran's foreign policy before and after the revolution. Now, why does it matter? You know, who cares? This was thirty-five years ago; uh, the Shah is dead and gone. Um, so, why does it matter? It, it, it matters both for this history of the relationship between Iran and the West, and especially between Iran and the United States, matters immensely. This history hovers you know, in the background uh, when it comes to the relationship today. It matters for the Americans uh, because this period, I'm going to try and argue, represents a period when Iran's ambitions and America's interests were not in conflict, but were actually aligned when Iran's ambitions could be accommodated within an American global order. And that's a tremendously important example Uh, that's worth looking at and worth studying studying from an American perspective. And from an Iranian perspective, it's also very important. It's very important to come to terms with the reality of the Shah's international figure because there is a popular view amongst many Iranians that this period was a period of American exploitation of Iran of neo-colonialism, But I am trying to challenge that and to argue that, in fact, having a partnership between the United States and Iran doesn't necessarily imply colonialism or exploitation or any such, such, such thing. But actually, Iran can advance its interests in partnership with the United States. And the, the Shah showed us that it can be done. Uh, and so that's why I think it's important from an Iranian point of view to study this history. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the sources and the design of the book. I spent about two or three years mostly working in um, British and American archives, studying the sources. I made a a number of trips to Tehran. Uh, I had much less success getting access to to the Iranian archives, but I do use quite a lot of Persian language material in the book. Diaries, memoirs, interviews, things like that. Um, uh, But uh, the bulk of the sources come from the United States, and be- because of the 30-year rule, most, I mean, the, the overwhelming majority of sources have now been declassified, including a lot of material from the CIA, from the White House, a lot of things that we didn't know. So much of the relationship between the Shah and uh, the US was covert, was secret. Uh, and so I've, I'm delving into that. Now, this also is not a chronological history. I didn't set out to write a chronological history because there are good chronological histories. And if you want to read about oil and you want to read about arms deals and so on, there's great stuff that's already out there. What I wanted to look at, I I thought I'll pick three what I call episodes that map the rise and fall of this partnership between the Shah and the Nixon administration, between the Shah and Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. And I start with the origins of the Nixon Doctrine in the Persian Gulf, the way in which the Shah convinced the Americans to back Iran's bid for regional primacy. And then I looked at the peak of the relationship, which was the partnership between Iran and the US to fight a secret war in Iraq, in Northern Iraq, to back the Kurds of Northern Iraq against the Bahti government in Baghdad. And then I looked at the decline of the relationship after Nixon's resignation, after Watergate. And for obvious reasons, I, I looked at the negotiations between the Ford administration and Iran for the sale of nuclear technology from the US to Iran. Why those negotiations failed? And so, so it's, it's, a, it's this kind of book. Uh, it, it, it deals in great depth and detail with three what I think are very important episodes in the history of the US-Iran relationship that haven't really been looked at or explored in any great depth before. Um, and most of it is, a lot of these sources, you know, I was the first person to look at these things. So I might have got it wrong somewhere, <laughs> but hopefully some graduates <laughs> will come along and write a revisionist version of it. I hope. Um, so, when you talk about the US and Iran in the Cold War, um, most people will immediately conjure up images of the 1953 coup in Iran of uh, Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh, the great... Uh, hero of Iranian, uh, of the Iranian national narrative, the icon of anti-colonialism who nationalized the Iranian oil industry, and the Eisenhower administration's decision to overthrow Mossadegh, in cooperation with Britain in a, in a covert operation. And this picture is from December 1953, just months after the coup, Richard Nixon, who was Vice President in the Eisenhower administration goes to Tehran. And this is the first meeting between the two men. Um, And it's very well remembered, this troop in Iran, because there were demonstrations at Tehran University and two students were shot by the police. And that day is still commemorated as Students' Day in in Iran until today. Um, so Nixon's introduction to Iran wasn't a particularly auspicious <laughs> one, uh, but, you know, but this is where it began. This is where the relationship between these two men began. This is the context, very much the context of the Cold War. Um, and it really, that coup in 1953 set the tone for the relationship between the US and Iran throughout the 1960s. And the nature of this relationship really was one between a patron and a client, uh, the United States provided uh, significant amounts of military aid to the Shah's increasingly autocratic and corrupt regime uh, in order to preserve Iran uh, as a pro-American state in what was called the Northern Tier. Uh, came up, uh, John Foster Dulles came up with this idea of the Northern Tier. E- Turkey, Iran, uh, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and Pakistan that separated the Soviet Union from the oil-rich Persian Gulf. That was Iran's role in the world. Iran was essentially a battleground. It wasn't really an actor. It was more a liability for the Americans. They had to invest resources in Iran to prevent it from falling to the communists. This was the logic of the Cold War era. And that was and, and it didn't really matter whether the Democrats were in power or Republicans. This was the dynamic of the relationship. Um, the U.S. government had really no qualms about interfering in the internal affairs of Iran. Kennedy uh, 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 pushed the Shah very vigorously to carry out domestic reforms. He even foisted a prime minister on the Shah, Ali Amin. Lyndon Johnson uh, imposed uh, the notorious Status of Forces Agreement Mm -hmm. on Iran in 1964. This was an agreement that gave American military personnel in Iran uh, immunity from prosecution under Iranian law. Uh, uh, which caused a huge national scandal and actually <coughs> <really> <coughs> propelled uh, Ayatollah Khomeini into the national spotlight His yeah. yeah. opposition to it. So this was the nature of the of the U.S.-Iran relationship, and it was never a comfortable relationship. The Shah always chafed in the context of this patron-client relationship. He constantly pushed for more arms, for more money, for more independence from the Americans. And the Americans constantly pushed him to rein in his military spending, do something about the corruption, do something about the lack of freedom in Iran. And neither of them really got anywhere. Neither of them really got away. And it was in the the sort of midst of all of this. Now, of course, you know that um, Richard Nixon loses his bid for the presidency to John Kennedy in 1960 and goes into the political wilderness. But while he's in the political wilderness, um, he is not forgotten by the Shah. And he makes a number of trips to Tehran, and he maintains his friendship with the Shah. And against the advice of his advisors, the Shah continues to receive Nixon, even while the Democrats are in power. And Nixon never forgets this. And there's a fantastic meeting in April of 1967 when Nixon goes to Tehran. He's raising his profile ahead of the 1968 presidential election goes to Tehran. He has a wonderful two-hour lunch with the Shah at the Algarant Palace. And if you go to the Nixon Library, you can read Nixon's handwritten notes from this meeting. He used to keep these giant <coughs> legal pads that he kept notes about everything, <coughs> and it's just fantastic. You know, you read this, and you can see it's really a, you know a meeting of minds, you know, uh, which is quite remarkable if you think about it. Here's a guy. Here's the son of the, here's the Shah of Iran, the emperor, the pivot of the universe, the <laughs> reflection of God on earth. And here is the son of an orange farmer from California. <laughs> yeah, and, and yet their, their mentality, their worldview, their mental map uh, are very similar. And they meet. And the Shah essentially the Shah says, according to Nixon, I'm really tired of these Harvard boys telling me how to run my country. And he's talking about the men who were surrounded Kennedy and who remained in the Johnson administration. He's tired of these liberals who just don't understand that in, to rule Iran, you have to have an iron fist. You know, they don't understand my country's problems. And they're not fighting the Cold War effectively. Remember, the uh, Kennedy administration has made an attempt to reach out to Nasser, the Arab nationalists, which infuriated the Shah. Um, and uh, uh, and so uh, and of course this was music to Nixon's ears. You know they hated the same people. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and so and Nixon goes back to the US and he gives a he gives a speech uh, in California where he essentially says, look, you know, our kind of democracy is inappropriate for every country in the world. Um, and, and so and, and, and the seeds are planted for what is going to come. Uh, uh, in the 1970s Um, uh, and of course as you know um, uh, Nixon wins the presidential election against Hubert Humphrey Uh, he wins uh, uh, rather narrowly um, and uh, uh, chooses out of relative obscurity a Harvard University professor called uh, Henry Kissinger to be his uh, national security advisor Um, this is a picture of Kissinger at Persepolis in 1974. You probably This is a very rare picture. I found this in the Georgetown University Library Archive. Here he is. This is Richard Helms here, who was the former director of the CIA and um, was the ambassador to Iran. Um, uh, this is from 1974. Um, and... Uh, Nixon and Kissinger are confronted with the problem primarily of Vietnam. Uh, they are elected on the on the promise of peace with honor, of extracting the United States from the Vietnam War without losing American credibility. Um, And uh, this becomes what is known as the Nixon Doctrine, this idea of... uh, The central premise of this idea is that the US is going to pick and choose where in the Cold War um, it engages with the Soviet Union. It's not going to get drawn into every little conflict in every backwater of the third world because, what, because that's exactly what happened in Vietnam and it drains the United States and it prevents the United States from exercising effective leadership. So how, but, but the problem is there's a dilemma because the U.S. is a global superpower that has global interests. So how do you resolve this dilemma of having global interests But wanting to pick and choose where you confront the Soviet Union as well. Well, the answer to that is the Nixon Doctrine. The Nixon Doctrine says, Nixon enunciates it on a trip to East Asia and the island of Guam in 1969. He says that we are going to provide essentially the weapons and the material for Asian countries to defend themselves. We're not going to get drawn, our troops are not going to get drawn into these conflicts. It sounds familiar, I (laughs) think. So, uh, now, this happens to coincide with the British withdrawal from the Persian Gulf. The Wilson government, Harold Wilson's government, uh, Labour government, decides that rather than implementing very painful cuts in the NHS and social spending, what they're going to do is cut (coughs) defense spending, uh, and they see um, the British presence in the Gulf as rather anachronistic, Uh, They want to pivot to Europe, Uh, and so uh, this is the perfect opportunity for the Shah, who has been lobbying and calling for uh, Iranian leadership in the Gulf region for years, and has been turned down by one American president after another. But now Nixon and Kissinger begin to take seriously the idea that Iran can assume the mantle of regional privacy from the British, and keep the Gulf out of the hands Soviet Union uh, and its Arab allies, especially the Ba'ath Party, which <coughs> had come back to power in Iraq in June 1968. Um, you have to remember that at that time, in around right about 1968-69, there were huge fears about what was going to happen when Britain left the Gulf. There were these kind of fantastic scenarios about, you know, uh, uh, <coughs> Arabia without saltiness, (coughs) as Fred Halei, you know, God rest his soul, uh, used to say. Um, uh, There were fears that the Soviet Union was going to suddenly uh, enter into the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. And here was a country with tremendous resources, tremendous oil wealth, and a very strong pro-American leader who was willing to fill the vacuum. Uh, And not only was he willing to do that, but he was willing to spend huge amounts of money buying weapons, you know, from the United States. So it seemed like a perfect solution. Um, an interesting point is that the Americans were very skeptical. You know, the question arises, of course, as to why they backed Iran and not, say, Saudi Arabia. And there is a kind of popular misconception that Nixon's policy in the Gulf was a twin pillars policy. You probably it's this term, twin pillars. But it wasn't the twin pillars policy. There was no twin pillars. This is a term that journalists came up with in 1980. 1980s. It was actually a one-pillar policy. And they paid lip service to the Saudis so as not to offend them, essentially. But the reality was that they had a very pessimistic view about the House of Saud. There was every expectation in Washington that the Saudis would fall. And they thought that the Shah would survive. So <laughs> um,
2: there,
1: there were good reasons for that in the 1970s. The Shah was seen as a reformer the Saudis were seen as conservative and traditional, unwilling to reform. Um, and there were significant questions about King Faisal's health. He was constantly in Geneva receiving medical treatment, and there was a lot of questions about succession and so on. Um, to the extent that in 1973, Kissinger and the Shah actually began cooking up secret plans for Iran to seize Saudi Arabia's oil fields Uh, and restore the House of Saud to power if the Arab nationalists were ever to... You know, the Libya-style coup was ever to happen in Saudi Arabia. Of course, this was extremely secret. Uh, These documents were only released in the last few years. Um, uh, But nevertheless, the plans were there. Uh, And the the Shah was perfectly happy to do that. And in fact, in 1969, uh, Iran had given military assistance to Saudi Arabia when the Saudis had been threatened by Yemen. Uh, the Iranian foreign—I interviewed the Iranian foreign minister at the time, and he told me he stood on the tarmac at Mehrabad Airport and watched the C-130 the Iranian Air Force C-130s take off uh, for Saudi Arabia, filled with all kinds of weapons and tanks and so on. And so forth. <coughs> this was, of course, all secret because it would have been hugely embarrassing for King Faisal. The crux of this relationship was that in exchange for Iran playing this role, there would be no more second-guessing the Shah. There would be no more discussion about human rights. There would be no more discussion about arms sales limitations. How the Shah ran his country was his business. And if you wanted to buy more American weapons, great. It's great for the American balance of payments. <laughs> this, this was the mentality. Um. The height of this relationship came in around about, pretty much after Nixon's re-election in 1972. He wins by a landslide. Uh, For no reason whatsoever, his re-election campaign has this third-rate burglary in the Watergate building, which ends up unraveling his whole presidency. It's completely unnecessary. Um, But in any case, between that period from around about 1972 to 1973 is the the peak of the relationship. It it begins with a visit by Nixon and Kissinger to Tehran. Immediately after their visit to Moscow, where they signed the ABM treaty uh, uh, with Brezhnev, they fly from Moscow to Tehran in the end of May 1972. And in the meetings they have with the Shah in Tehran, uh, they pretty much agree to give Iran a blank check, as far as arms sales are concerned. Iran can buy pretty much anything it wants, other than nuclear weapons. Um, and the second important thing that comes out of those meetings is an agreement that the United States Will enter into, will begin cooperating with Iran and Israel to support this man, Mullah Mustafa Barzani, the leader of the uh, Kurdish insurgency in northern Iraq, you know, a heroic figure to Kurdish nationalists and the father of the pres- present uh, prime President, I think, of the KRG. Now this war has had been going on for a long time, ever since the early 1960s. The, of course, the Kurds had been fighting for their independence for a long time, but uh, this latest round of fighting began in the early 60s. And the Israelis were supporting the Kurds as a way to weaken Iraq and keep the Iraqis out of the Arab Israeli conflict. Uh, and the Iranians were involved because it was a way for Iran to neutralize the Iraqi army so that it wouldn't pose a threat <coughs> along the Shat al Arab that divided the two countries, this very strategic waterway. Um, and it was working. It worked very well. It was relatively inexpensive for Iran, uh, and it uh, uh, was very useful. The problem was that Barzani, who was a very smart operator, realized that relying on the Iranians, who gave most of the weapons and most of the money, was a pretty bad idea. Because Kurdish independence was not in the Shah's interest. After all, the Iranians have their own Kurdish minority, and having an independent Kurdistan in Iraq would be disastrous for the Iranians. So he was constantly tempted with the idea of brokering some kind of deal with the central government in Iraq. And the Shah had to find some way to stop him from doing that. To keep fighting. To not make a deal with the Ba'ath who had come to power. And the only people who could prevent Baizani from doing that were the Americans. Because they were the only people that Baizani really trusted. And so... The Shah and Richard Helms and Henry Kissinger cook up this idea that the U.S. will become essentially the guarantor of the Kurds in this secret war, that the Shah will not sell out the Kurds if they actually come close to achieving independence. And it's never sort of said explicitly in those terms, but it's implicit. And uh, and so the CIA becomes involved in this covert operation that's basically run by Sadak, with the support of the Mossad and with uh, the support of the CIA. And uh, these weapons come to Tehran. They are then flown into uh, uh, Kurdistan by the Iranians. And the Americans have no physical presence in Kurdistan. (coughs) The Israelis do. There's a Mossad base there. They have a hospital. They have a radio station. But the the CIA officers, and I interviewed Barzani's case officer in the CIA, the guy who actually managed to relate to the government, uh, they were not allowed to enter into Kurdistan. And it was extremely secret and it was extremely sensitive because if, if it became known overtly that the U.S. was meddling in the internal affairs of Iraq in this way, it would be disastrous for the U.S. relationship with the Arab states. <coughs> um, and so it was a very closely guarded secret. Very few people even within the U.S. government knew about it. It was basically handled by the CIA, one or two people in the National Security Council in the White House, um, and Richard Helms in Tehran. State Department was completely cut out of the loop, uh, even when Henry Kissinger was Secretary of State, so, uh, which was quite, you know, there's a famous joke about Henry Kissinger, how he treated the State Department, you know, he, he, he treated them like mushrooms, you know, they would get manure piled on top of them, and then when he didn't need them, they get canned. <laughs> uh, so, this all, this all works, this all seems to work, more or less, until you get to Watergate, and the revelations of Watergate, and especially Nixon's resignation in August 1974, is a real earthquake in the U.S.-Iran relationship because the 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 main leg of this relationship is removed. Gerald Ford becomes president, the only unelected president in American history, um, and the atmosphere in the United States becomes deeply hostile to this kind of relationship between the U.S. and autocrats like um, One of the Shah. Cons- at the same time, you'll remember, because of the October 73 war, the price of oil goes through the roof. And Iran's resources and Iraq's resources multi- yeah. you know, multiply dramatically. And the Iraqi military is able to deploy forces against the Kurds that they've never been able to do before. So in 1974, for the first time, the Iraqi military, when they're fighting the Kurds, when the winter comes, they don't retreat. They, normally, they would normally retreat back into the, uh, the lowlands, out of the mountains, and wait until the spring when the snow melted and then re-engage. This time, they hunker down. And this is quite frightening for the Kurds, because it means that the Iraqis are now determined to wipe them out once and for all. And what happens is that this increase in oil prices escalates this war. Uh, Iran is actually forced to secretly deploy forces into Iraq. <coughs> uh, they go on um, 24-hour missions across the border into Iraq. Iranian artillery positions are set up along the border to hit the uh, uh, Iraqi armored columns. Uh, Iranian air force jets are engaging with the Iraqis, and this this could have been an Iran-Iraq war. This was very close to being a full-scale Iran-Iraq war, and the Shah realizes that with Nixon gone with this war escalating Iran could find itself in a position where it's confronting not only Iraq but the Soviet Union without the assistance of the United States and so what he does is he makes a deal with Saddam Hussein in uh, 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 at end of March 1975 he signs the Algiers agreement on the sidelines of the OPEC summit in Algiers and the deal, basically, is that Iran will stop its support for the Kurds, and in exchange, the Iraqis will recognize Iranian sovereignty Mm. over their half of the Shatelah. And the way this history is usually written is that this was the Shah's goal all along. It was this Machiavellian plan to get this territorial concession from the Iraqis. That's not true at all. This was sort of the best he could get out of uh, a very dire situation for the Iranians. uh, it not to diminish the achievement as far as Iranian diplomacy can, was concerned. The, the Iranians have been trying to get this for years. Uh, but it was very grim news for the Kurds. Because it meant that the Iraqi army could then advance, for the first time since the 1960s, uh, 1961, could advance all the way to the border with Iran and cut off the supply routes of Kurds. Uh, and, of course, Barzani had to go into exile first in Iran. He ended up in the US and he died of cancer in Georgetown University Hospital in 1978. So, unfortunately for the Shah, this really was, this period after 1974, 75, really was the era of decline in, in, in this relationship. And it happens long before Jimmy Carter becomes president. Most Iranians think that you know, Jimmy Carter becomes president, he starts to talk about human rights, and that's the end of the U.S.-Iran relationship. That's not true at all. It actually all begins on the after Watergate. The reason is because the Shah's public image dramatically changes in the United States. Oil prices are going through the roof. People are paying more money for petrol at the pump. There's shortages. And the media blames the Shah of Iran. And he is seen as this megalomaniac who's driving the price of oil through the roof, making life miserable for Europe, for the United States, in order to buy more and more sort of extravagant American um, uh, weapons. Uh, On top of that, the issue of human rights becomes front and center in American politics. Uh, In 1977, you have the first congressional hearings in the US about human rights in Iran, before, uh, uh, well, just after Carter um, uh, comes into office. Uh, And what happens is that uh, a lot of the secret deals that Nixon and Kissinger had done uh, are leaked. They become public. Uh, congressional committees, the Pike Committee, the Church Committee, they're investigating all these nefarious things that the CIA was up to, and all of this stuff becomes public, including the Kurdish operation. Uh, and it's really a uh, 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 very um, tough time for the Shah. And in the book I talk about how in the midst of all of that, the Shah is trying to negotiate this agreement with the U.S. to buy nuclear reactors from the United States, to get... Uh, and the deal f- its fascinating because you see that many of the same concerns, many of the same issues, many of the same American objections that you see today about Iran's nuclear program were expressed and voiced before the revolution in response to the Shah's nuclear program. There was a deep-seated fear of the idea of Iran, regardless of who's ruling Iran, having access to this kind of technology because of the kind of ambitions that Iran has. And the, and the impact it would have on the balance of power in the Middle East and the Gulf region. Um, and the bottom line, and, and, and I can talk about the details of the negotiations, but the bottom line is that the U.S. tries to impose certain safeguards on Iran that go far beyond the Iran's commitments under the non proliferation treaty under the NPT. And the Shah says no. Uh, he, refused, he, he refuses to allow Iran to be treated as a second-rate country, as a... As a any differently to the way the US treats other NPT signatories. Of course, what he could do in the 70s, which Iran can't do now, is that he went to France and Germany, and he bought everything he needed from the French and the Germans, who were perfectly happy to sell Iran, uh, all kinds of reactors and reprocessing technologies. <coughs> um, of course, this all ends you know, yeah. uh, in tears, uh, the 1979 revolution, the Shah leaves the country in January. This is the last picture picture ever taken of Nixon and the Shah. It's taken in um, a place called Cuernavaca, in, in, in just sort of north of Mexico City, in Mexico, in, in July 1979, one of the many places the Shah lived while he was in exile. He was this kind of, Henry Kissinger called him a flying Dutchman, going from port to port. and, and his old friends, Nixon, Kissinger, and the Rockefellers, tried very hard to lobby the Carter administration to allow the Shah to come to the U.S. for medical treatment. As they discovered, he had been suffering from cancer. Uh, we now <coughs> know he was originally diagnosed around about 1974. So again, the same time as Watergate. Um, uh, Carter is very reluctant to let the Shah into the U.S. because he's very fearful of what will happen to the American diplomats Quite rightly so, We're fearful of what will happen to American diplomats in Tehran. But the pressure is really unrelenting. Uh, And he finally agrees in October of 1979 that the Shah could go to the U.S. Of course, you know that the the U.S. embassy is taken hostage in November. uh, And the Shah voluntarily leaves the country after that. Uh, He ends up in Panama for a while, uh, eventually in Egypt. uh, And he dies in Egypt uh, in -hmm. the summer of 1980 and is buried there. Um, but it's quite fascinating, you know, these two men, Nixon living really in disgrace uh, after his resignation. Uh, after, this is long before he was rehabilitated and uh, during the Reagan years. Um, and the Shah, you know, this, this relationship endured. There was really something to it. Uh, it, it uh, this U.S.-Iran partnership uh, was a meeting of mind between two foreign policy realists. Two practitioners of realpolitik. You know, Henry Kissinger called the Shah, and many of the documents he refers to him as a cold-blooded ruler, which you know is the highest compliment. That Kissinger <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 that's what this relationship really represented. It represented uh, uh, two very different countries with different interests, um, but with one uh, worldview, and and uh, and the argument. You know, I am trying to make with this book is that in, as we move forward, as we look at places like Iran, as we look at the threat from ISIS, as we look at the balance of power in the Persian Gulf, it is not impossible for Iran's interests and ambitions to be accommodated by the United States. It does involve change on the part of the Iranians. There is, um, I think it's fair to say, there is a realist trend. There's a realist school of thought in Tehran, which is very much represented by President Rouhani and his foreign minister, Jawad Zarif. By the way, Zarif and Kissinger have met many times when he was the ambassador to the UN. In uh, he was heavily criticized for those meetings in Parliament in Iran. But it's not impossible. There are Iranians who think in these terms. And even though they would Completely reject the idea that they are somehow embracing a paternity doctrine or anything like that. Uh, there are certain uh, enduring things in Iranian foreign policy that can be encouraged by engagement. And the real test of this is this nuclear agreement. And if we manage to reach a deal by the 24th of November, or even if we manage to extend the negotiations, it will be a real victory for that realist school for And it has the potential to lead again to a partnership between. The US and Iran that really serve the interests of both of these countries. I'm happy to talk more about that in the QA. I think I'll
0: stop there. Well, thank you very much. I thought that was superb, a tour de force with very few notes and pacing up and down without. uh, Without without uh, a script, I thought it's excellent, and I thought it's a it's a rather beautiful balance between the domestic drivers of policy and the structural, the international drivers, which I may ask a question about later. We have three quarters of an hour uh, before you get to buy the book and I get to have a glass of wine. Um, so. Feel free to ask questions. Uh, that, the, the word there is questions, not statements. Or uh, there's only one lecturer here, so keep it. Stand up, up once I recognise you. Say who you are, and then a short question. Who wants to go first? Yes, you may.
2: My name is Natasha Jenner. I just wanted to ask because you said that is uh, the politics now is similar relationship with US is similar to the Shah's time, which led to his downfall. So do you think this development is the beginning of an end?
0: Right. The beginning of the end. Right, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll group a few. You say, you seem very keen.
1: Hello, yes, my name is Mohamed El-Sidari. Um, you touched a bit upon it with regards to the role Saudi Arabia plays in the context of uh, U.S.-Iranian relations. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on the role Saudi Arabia played in shaping these relations, because I remember in a book by Andrew Scobal, he talked about how the Saudis basically used oil kinks. They used a lot of the, the energy lobby basically to add pressures on the relationship. And Faisal, I think, even after the Arab embargo, was very cognizant of
0: the closeness of the U.S.-Iranian relationship, and he tried to basically, you know, break them apart, as it were. Absolutely. All right, and the final question in this round. Yes, you, sir, with the beard. Yeah, him. Oh, they've all got bits. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, you, you go for, all right, we'll have two. You and then the, the man with the beard next to you as well. <laughs>
2: Hello, uh, my name is Ali Reza Um uh, You actually uh, refer to the Shah as a despot in 1979 and then you use the word autocrat um, I was wondering if you differentiate between um, an autocrat dictator and despot and how you uh, in the time frame of uh, the Shah's leadership, when was he what? Excellent. You. If
0: you could hand the mic to Dr. Emery that would be great.
2: <laughs> Thank you, uh, Chris Emery yeah, um, if you buy the premise that by the time Carter comes in, essentially US-Iranian relations are entrenched, there's very little he can do, so they're kind of too personalised, too institutionalised, too lucrative. If you accept that premise, do you think anything could have been done, particularly during maybe the Ford administrations, that would have actually led the US to be in a better position when the revolution occurred? You know, Perhaps whether Schlesinger could have made some movement? I know he was trying, so.
0: Excellent. So you've got, I think, four excellent questions. Uh, one,
2: 79, 2014.
0: Is this, I take it, is, this, is there a comparison? Is this the end of the, uh, uh, the Islamic regime? Uh, the Saudi oil lobby, I guess, and how they shaped uh, U.S. policy towards the region. Now, the Shah, despot, autocrat, or democrat, a comment, but more importantly, comment on the time, did he shift from one to the other? And fine, finally, the kind of uh, determinism of Dr. Emery's question, uh, could Carter have escaped... The, 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 I guess the dynamic of uh, iranian U.S. relations? Was there room for agency in the structure, structured relationship?
1: Yeah, these are really good questions. Um, is it the beginning of the end? I don't think so. I don't think so. Because I think that the Iranian revolution was driven primarily by domestic Iranian factors. I, that's my own view. Uh, I would even go further and say that the Iranian revolution was really a crisis that was really badly handled. That I think the Shah could have survived in 1978, if he, in '7778, if he had handled the crisis better. So I don't think there's any inevitab- I don't see an inevitability about it. Um, the Islamic Republic uh, is a much more complex and difficult uh, entity to study and understand than the Shah's regime. It's very easy to study the Shah's regime. you just study the Shah. <laughs> and four or five other people that were around him. The Islamic Republic is infinitely more complex. It's institutionalized and power is dispersed and it works on a kind of very opaque consensus-based decision-making, which adds to its strength. It's less brittle in that sense. Um, but there are certainly people within the regime who think that, who are very concerned that uh, a realist foreign policy will lead exactly to what you're saying, to the fall. You know, uh, I think inevitably... Some sort of understanding or accommodation with the United States will mean some sort of change for Iran. I think positive change, Um, uh, but I don't think it necessarily means the end of the um, uh, Islamic Republic. Um, Saudi Arabia and the Ford years, yeah. I mean, uh, my friend Andrew Scott Cooper has written a fantastic book about this. Uh, Yeah, on the on the Ford years. Essentially, what happened is that. a couple of people within the Ford administration, especially Bill Simon, who was the US Treasury secretary, uh, hatched a deal with Sheikh Zaki Yamani and the Saudis to bring down the price of oil you have to remember the 1970s late 1970s were not a great time economically for Europe or for the United States you know uh, and uh, and so they hatched a deal in order to undercut um, the oil price and this really hurt Iran very badly it caused an economic crisis in Iran, massive budget deficits, uh, era of austerity under the Amazighar governments, and so on and so forth. Um, now, that leads to, I think, Chris's question of, you know, well, could Ford have done something different? Um, I don't think... I don't so much think Ford is the agent here. I think there's very little that Jerry Ford could have done because he he could... You know, he was... He became president in circumstances where he had, very, he had no mandate. He couldn't claim to, you know, he basically had the Constitution. That was about it. You know. um, and, the, what, and power was shifting from the White House to Congress. Congress was clawing back power from what was perceived as the imperial presidency of Richard Nixon. And so I think there was very little that, that Ford could have done. Um, where the real. The real agents of the history, are, and I'm actually looking into this now, uh, Cong- uh, people like uh, Donald Fraser, the head of the House Committee on International Relations, or groups like Amnesty International, or the International Commission for Jurists, or uh, a lot of these, or the media in the US, you know, these social forces which are really begin- having an impact on the US-Iran relationship they never had before. Um, despot Autocrat. Um, I think the best explication of this is done by Homer Cartouzian. Cartouzian argues that uh, the Shah's regime was what he calls arbitrary rule. And what that essentially means is that there were no legal constraints, really, on the power of the Shah. Iran, of course, had a constitution since 1906, but it was essentially ignored. so there were very few legal constraints on the Shah. Now this is very, it's a paradox, because you see the way the Shah behaves in the domestic context in the 1970s, it's appalling. You know, It's one mistake after another, the overheating of the Iranian economy, the introduction of a one-party state, the Rastoghiz party in 1975. And you see that when there are no constraints on what he can do, he is terrible. He makes one mistake after another. But in the international arena, there are constraints. There are significant constraints, most importantly the Cold War, bipolarity. And the Shah perfectly understands those constraints and manoeuvres very carefully between all of these red lines that are set and pushes the limits of Iran's power in all kinds of contexts. So, for example, he relinquishes Iran's claim to Bahrain in 1971. At the same time, he seizes the islands of Abu Musa and the Toms in a secret sort of wink, nod, understanding with the British. Um, He supplies military aid to Pakistan in 1971 during the Indo-Pakistan War at the request of the Americans. But he refuses to actually participate in the war despite the pleas of the Pakistanis. So he's... I found this rather fascinating that he could understand so well the international arena and so poorly... the the domestic arena. So I I call him the best foreign minister Iran never had. (laughs)
0: Right, who's next? Yes, you sit right at the back in the blue T-shirt. And you sit down on the front afterwards.
2: Hello, I'm Abdullah. Thank you for your time and coming here and the Middle East Center for organizing. You touched upon a point uh, just now uh, which uh, leads up to my question. Um, The Shah, as you mentioned, was great at Realpolitik Uh, Many scholars in America thought of him as an expert in brinksmanship. Brings me to 1968, when Harold Wilson decided to retreat from the east of Suez, uh, in which um, the British were also protecting the lower Gulf states, crucial states of what is now Bahrain, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, In 1971, uh, throughout this period, the Shah reclaimed uh, his right to Bahrain, which he let go in 1971, but instead focused on the three UAE islands, which you say were seized, some claim to be occupied. Now, what do you think was the Shah's rationale behind his claims to Abu Musa, Greater Tom, Lesser Tum and why was it that he never visited these islands until Ahmadinejad did for the first time as a American, uh, sorry, Iranian president, a few years ago?
0: That's it, I'm afraid Uh, that was long enough Can we have the question down here? I'm afraid so I don't want you to walk down. Thank you. My name is Aziz Klova, is I'm the Guatemalan ambassador here, Guatemala. Uh, I
1: would like to ask you something. You mentioned Israel and Levi. just a moment. Uh, In your conclusions, where is Israel? Where is Israel? those Thank you.
0: Okay, next one. Yes, you sir, with the glasses. And the white you shirt. Think, In- uh, oh, for that. I've got a big voice.
1: <coughs> Do you think uh, America's rekindling its relationship
0: with the Kurds? Short and effective. Uh, and one more.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes, you sir. Um, you're talking about real politics for this while, but are you really focusing on the personal relationship? And could we see a future American president being charming
1: with like Ayatollah in the near future?
0: Yeah. Right, so the first question is, is why were the Abu Musa and the Tam seized? I think that's, that's a good one. Second one, where is Israel? Uh, a good question indeed and generally, but specifically I suppose towards the Shah's policy. Um, the rising uh, influence uh, is, is the Kurdish relationship with the U.S. rekindling. And uh, some, remind me of the fourth one. Personal. Uh, first, personal uh, that's right. That was a question I was going to ask. Because in, in a way, I've I spent uh, all morning trying to explain to my students the, 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 the interface between domestic and international under what well, we were in, in the art department called neoclassical realism. And it struck me if I was going to ask you a question it would be exactly the same as, as, as this gentleman's. So you rather eloquently set out the personal link between the Shah and Nixon, but then you very powerfully set out the kind of structural dynamics vietnam nixon doctrine where 's the balance between the two i guess and, or which one are you going to emphasize it 's a really good question
1: okay so let 's start with the, the Bahrain and the islands so um, no Iranian government up until in, including the shah, ever relinquished iran 's claim to Bahrain. It was a consistent claim. Going all the way, but even before the Pahlavi dynasty, including the Qajar governments and so on and so forth. Um, now, the validity of the claim and so on and so forth—you well, know—I leave that to the lawyers to, you know, debate. But um, Iran consistently maintained its claim to Bahrain throughout this period, and it became a kind of, it became one of the uh, common tropes of uh, Iranian nationalists. You know, including, for example, the Mossadegh government. You know, When the Anglo-Iranian oil company was nationalized, AIOC controlled oil in Bahrain as well. And one of Mossadegh's claims was that Iran also owns the oil production controlled by AIOC in Bahrain because Bahrain is part of Iran. Right? So um, what was remarkable about the Shah is that he relinquished Iran's claim to Bahrain. And he did it in New Delhi, of all places, in, in January 1969. He was on a trip... Uh, to India, and I think it was a very carefully chosen place to make this uh, announcement. And he didn't say that Iran, you know, Bahrain is not a part of Iran. He said that if the people of Bahrain don't want to be part of Iran, we're not going to force them. You know, we're not going to use force. You know, that what we should do is ask them, have a referendum, and if they want to be part of Iran, great. If they don't, that's fine too. Um, now, I've written an interesting article as you can um, read it if you have trouble sleeping. Uh, um, but in the, the fascinating thing is that it was you know there was a secret deal with the British about how to manage the process for Bahrain's independence what the Shah wanted was a referendum in Bahrain the British did not want a referendum because they felt that having a referendum would spark the domestic unrest in Bahrain because of the Shia Sunni divisions that it would turn into a referendum about whether Bahrain should be shia or sunni and so they blocked that idea and instead they came up with this idea of sending a u.n representative an italian diplomat to bahrain who met with certain groups and then wrote a report saying that bahrain wants to be independent and then this was accepted by the u.n security council and iran sort of looked the other way basically um, now there's a, how this relates to the islands is that some people say there was a quid pro quo that the Shah gave up Bahrain in exchange for British acquiescence on the islands. I've never found any evidence of this. However, I must say that most of the British files that deal with these negotiations are still classified. They're not open. So there must be something embarrassing in there. <laughs> okay? And I strongly suspect that there, that there was some kind of quid pro quo, but as a good historian, I wait until I have the sources to be able to to, to, to prove that.
0: And why did the Shah never visit the islands?
1: Why did he never visit? I'm not sure that he never visited the islands, to be honest with you. Um, Iran stationed forces on the islands, especially on Abu Musa. Well, Abu Musa was the only inhabited island. The others, the, the Toms, are not inhabited. Um, and uh, uh, the reason he was so keen on, on seizing these islands was because um, they are positioned in very close to the Strait of Hormuz, and there was a fear that once the British leave, if these islands fall into the hands of, say, the Iraqis, the Arab nation, <coughs> or any any Arab radical force, that they could then use those islands to attack shipping through the Strait of Hormuz. And, for, and this is the lifeline of the Iranians, but also others in the Gulf. And so the Shah was absolutely you know, adamant that they had to be in safe hands. You know. I don't think it was driven so much by some sort of nationalist desire to reclaim lost territory I mean it was framed in that way but I think the real rationale for it was very much strategic Um, and I think even a lot of the rulers in the southern um, gulf uh, you know would make public speeches denouncing this that and the other but in practice didn't really do much about it um, because it also served their interest to some extent Um, right Israel in the conclusion probably the most significant difference between the Shah's foreign policy and the foreign policy of the Islamic Republic is, of course, the question of Israel. Um, However, having said that, it's not as different as you think because from the time of the 1967 war, the Six-Day War onwards, the Shah became increasingly worried about Israel, even though Iran had a de facto relationship with Israel, not a de jure relationship. There was no Israeli embassy as such in Iran. There was a kind of mission... And there was an Iranian mission in Tel Aviv. But the Shah became increasingly concerned that the Israelis were becoming a force for instability in the Middle East. And they were creating opportunities for the Soviet Union to encroach into the Arab world by provoking conflict. And he increasingly sided with the sort of conservative Arab camp. He had a particularly close relationship with Anwar Sadat of Egypt. And Iran actually rather covertly supported Egypt during the 1973 war. Although they sold o- oil uh, to uh, the Israelis, they also supplied free oil to the Egyptians during the 73 um, war. And, as, and this deal, the, the Algiers Agreement in 1975, infuriated the Israelis because they felt that the Shah had pulled the plug on an Israeli operation without even consulting them. Um, the, the chief Mossad officer who was based in Kurdistan uh, said in his memoirs that you know he had to uh, he had to suddenly flee the advancing Iraqis. He had to flee into Iran. He said I was cursing the Shah all the way to Tehran, you know. Um, and they haven't forgotten that. Uh, but that special relationship between the Israelis and the Kurds is very still there, and I'm quite sure that there's some kind of relationship today. And there's probably all kinds of nefarious stuff going on that we don't know about.
0: Um, uh, what was this question? The Kurds increasing relations again. Yeah. The
1: Kurds are in a... By the way, the Kurds remember this history very clearly. This was after the fall of Mahabad in 1946. The Algiers' agreement in 75 was, is probably the worst moment in their history. Um... Uh, Barzani was completely demoralized. He, when the agreement was signed, he had to sit on the border between Iran and Iraq for days, <coughs> deciding what to do. And some of his Peshmerga forces wanted to keep fighting, and he reluctantly came to the conclusion that there was no point in doing that. Um, the reality is, and Toby is better qualified to talk about this than I am, but, <laughs> but the... Um, the reality is that the Kurds, I think, and the Peshmerga are really not what they used to be. You know, The Peshmerga in the 1970s, I mean, again, there's a, I saw a quote once from, a, from an Israeli IDF officer who said, you know, you put a Kurd in the mountain, you give him a rifle, some pizza bread and an onion, and he can stop an Iraqi column. <laughs> uh,
0: uh,
1: that's, just not the, that's just not the case anymore. Those those Peshmerga commanders from that era are all retired. They're all doing business, and this new generation have grown up in a, you know, have not gone through the, you know, the uh, fires of war that, you know, produce a steely metal. You know, these guys are a different breed, and I and I think remember that in the '70s when the Kurds were fighting, they were they were defending their positions in their mountain strongholds against Iraqi forces that were advancing from below. That's one thing. It's a totally separate thing to then try to fight ISIS in the open, you know, uh, in the the plains. And they've been much less successful, you know, in doing that. So it remains to be seen what the future is for the KRG and how viable they are. And I think the Americans realize that too. And they're... uh, And, of course, they have their bigger and broader interests in Iraq to consider as well. So uh, I think they will be reluctant before they decide, you know, to to throw in their lot in such an explicit way with the Kurds. Um, Personal relationship, this is a really good question. So to what extent was this just a personal relationship? So Henry Kissinger claims that the personal relationship had nothing to do with it, that this was just power politics, you know. This was realpolitik. Uh the balance of power had shifted because of the British withdrawal in Vietnam and the Shah filled the vacuum. And I think um, there's a lot to be said for that argument. That created an opportunity, undoubtedly. But I think the fact that the US seized the opportunity, that there was a real rethinking about the Shah. Don't forget, the Shah had a relationship with every American president going back to FDR. So there's a lot of baggage there. so the fact that Nixon was willing to rethink, was willing to... So, for example, when he decided to intervene in Kurdistan, he was advised not to. The CIA told him, don't do it. The NSC told him, don't do it. The State Department didn't know about it, but they certainly wouldn't have been in favor of it. Okay? And he did it anyway. And, and Kissinger agreed. And I think I think it's... It's not so much because they were friends and they had a personal relationship and he did a favor. It's because he came to see the region through the Shah's eyes. His analysis and understanding of the balance of power and the threats in the region became really identical to those of the Shah. He allowed the Shah to have that kind of influence over him. So when the Shah said to him, we have to support the Kurds because the Ba'ath in Iraq are a Soviet-backed threat, and if the Ba'ath win in Iraq, the Soviets will take over Iraq." They accepted that because the Shah was saying it. Even though their own analysts in Washington are saying, this is all nonsense, the Ba'ath are Arab nationalists, they have all kinds of problems with the Soviets. Right? He would ignore that advice. Yeah. So the personal relationship comes into it in that sense. Because you know I, I hate to sound like a constructivist, Okay. <laughs> but the but the reality is that there isn't you know it's, the notion of the national interest or real, is, is an essentially contested concept. It's invented. It's based on your identity. It's based on your worldview. Based on all sorts of assumptions you make about how the world works, you know, right? And so you can be influenced one way or the other. You know, otherwise we'd all be out of the job. your know? <laughs> <So. laughs> thought. Right, yeah. round, please.
0: Yeah. Yes, you sir. Yeah, you. If you stand up, she'll know where to give the mic to. My name's Rob, and I'm a PhD candidate at King's College. I'm sorry to bang the rather tired drum of the Arab-Israel
2: conflict because we just had the Israel question, the token one we have to have every one of these lectures. But I was wondering, I wanted to know about Israel-Iran ties within the context of your book. How much were they affected by, Israel, uh, by Iran's relationship with the United States? Was it a case of Israel
1: helping the Iranians to get on better terms with the Americans or the Americans helping the Israelis to get on better terms with the Iranians or something of that nature? You know, What's the bigger picture? Yeah.
0: Excellent, thanks. Who's next? Yes, you, sir. Or just stand up and shout. Uh, I, can, I can do that too. So, um, I'm Luis, uh, and... Um, I'm wondering, since you were mentioning Shah and the Shah's eyes in the rest of the region, uh, Central Asia in of itself, it's also, it has its own, its own vibrancy, right? Uh, the Turkmenistan has a huge border with Iran. Um, there's stuff happening already uh, in Azerbaijan and Armenia with the, um, you know the division of land and, and, and the Caucasus. And, and there's, of course, a lot of the series that are also, I think, in the border with Iran. Do, do we know much about it? the Shah also having an opinion in regards to the regional politics to the north of this border? Mm-hmm. Great question. One final one. I think they can smell the wine, but more importantly, <laughs> they want to rush out by your girl. <laughs> so uh, we'll leave. These were the last two questions. Hold, speak now, forever. Hold your peace. I've got a question. One more. Okay. For you, sir. I I'm not say exactly. The Shah <laughs> of Iran did Did you... Um, uh, he was putting time if i right, 1941 during the Second World War when Char Reza <coughs> was involved the Nazis and he was exiled to South Africa and he was right. put on the throne now, that was um, could you just say anything about that situation about um, whether that was a good or a bad thing when the British and the Russians as allies fighting against the Nazis uh, deposed Char Reza and put the Charles on the throne could you say anything about that? Sure. Wonderful, three good questions Two good answers, I'm sure. Um,
1: The the, uh, Israel-Iran relationship. The Shah had a relationship with the United States. That was the most important foreign relationship that he had. Uh, Iran had a relationship with the United States, not just the Shah. Um, The relationship with Israel was always connected to and sort of related to the U.S.-Iran relationship, but it was as much of a liability in many ways as it was an asset for the Shah. And the main context in which it matters was for the Shah was the Cold War. So in the late, after the Suez War, after 1956, when uh, 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 Nasser is victorious, Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion decides that uh, it's time for Israel to look for allies in the non-Arab Middle East to balance out the Arab nationalists. It's what's called the peripher- Periphery Pact. My good friend Noah Schonman is going to publish a fantastic book about this very soon, which you must read. Um, so, yes, and, and uh, it's in that context that this relationship grows, the Periphery Pact. And the idea is that the Shah is willing to talk to and support any anti-communist forces within, within the Middle East, and whether they're Israelis or Arabs, whether it's the Israelis or whether it's the Saudis or whether it's the Moroccans or whether it's King Hussein of Jordan or Anwar Sadat or whoever. Right? The problem is, for the Shah, is that, first of all, Israel is incredibly unpopular in Iran, so it cannot be an open relationship. You know, every single Israeli prime minister until 1979 visited Iran. But all they ever got to see was the VIP lounge in Mehrabad Airport, <laughs> you know, or Niyavaran Palace. They would be flown in, secretly driven to the palace. They'd have a secret meeting, and then they'd leave, and that would be it. Um, no Israeli envoy to Tehran ever met with the Shah. He would, yeah, right. um, so it was a sort of there was this tension in the in the relationship. The most important element of the relationship was oil. A pipeline was built, the Elat Ashkelon pipeline that allowed Iran to export oil to the Mediterranean. Iranian oil would be shipped up the Red Sea, and then there was a pipeline that connected the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, and then it would go from that port, uh, well, the Israelis would use some of it, would buy some of it, and then the rest of it would actually go to Romania. And Ceausescu in Romania, who is a great friend of the Shah, um, the Romanians had a very advanced uh, 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 oil industry, And they would refine that oil and it would be sold to a whole bunch of countries in the Warsaw Pact. So Iran was supplying oil to Eastern and Central Europe via Israel. And the reason for that was that the Shah feared that if there is detente between the communists and the West, Iran will get sold out. That the US might say to the Soviet Union, OK, you can have Iran. In exchange, we'll get, I don't know, somewhere in Central America. So he said, what I have to do is to make sure that the Soviets... Uh, have just as much of an interest in Iran's independence as the Americans do. And how can I do that? I can use a word. And I've just written something with um, a fantastic Romanian historian by the name of Elisa Gerge, who's at Cornell, and we've just written something together and it's going to be published soon. So I strongly encourage you to read that. Um, the Shah and the USSR, I think that's a natural progression to that question. Shah, the golden age of Iranian. Russian relations was the 1960s and 1970s. The Russians look back on that era with great fondness. Um, The Shah after 1962 normalized the Soviet-Iranian relationship and they got on like a house on fire. Uh, Iran uh, Soviet Union was the single biggest market for Iranian manufactured products. So in terms of non-oil exports, overwhelmingly it went to the Soviet Union. Um, and the Shah got on very well with the Soviet leaders, especially with Brezhnev. Um, Brezhnev visited Iran many times. Uh, uh, and the basic reason for this was that after, you know, from, Khrushchev was the last Soviet leader that really had any hope of dislodging Iran from the Western camp. You know, he really tried. I've written about this. I mean, he really pressured the Shah. He came up with all kinds of tactics to scare the Shah, and none of it really worked. And in the end, the Soviets gave up and said well, we might, as well have, we might as well have a profitable relationship with Iran. We might as well have a good relationship with Iran. Um, but there were tensions because the U.S. had very important intelligence listening posts in the north of Iran um, that were used to monitor Soviet missile tests. And these were absolutely crucial because when the uh, uh, SALT agreements were signed and, the, and a lot of the arms control agreements were signed, the way that the CIA monitored Soviet compliance with those treaties was via these listening posts. And when they were lost in 1979, it was a huge problem. It was a huge problem for the Americans. And they tried to reactivate them, but they never, it, never, it never happened. Um, 1941. Yeah, so ni- it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a myth that Reza Shah was pro-Nazi. Reza Shah was pro-German. And it's an important distinction. Because Iranian leaders, both before and after Reza Shah, this is the Shah's father, we're constantly looking for a third power that would protect Iran from Britain and Russia, these two massive imperial powers. The Russians were in the north ever since the, 19th, you know, the 18th century, more or less. They had been encroaching more and more and more into Iranian territory. The Iranians lost two devastating wars with the Russians in the 19th century. Um, every Iranian knows what the Treaty of Turkmen is. You've probably never heard of it, right? Um, but it's the treaty that set essentially the northern border of Iran um, where it is now. Iran lost its territories in the Caucasus Um, uh, and in the south of course you had the British who controlled the oil industry uh, and the Persian Gulf and so the Iranians always looked for a third power a neutral third power that would be able to help them balance against these imperial colonial powers and sometimes they looked to Germany um, but from around about the sort of 19, late 1940s on was they increasingly looked to America. And the great hope was that the United States, you know, with all the rhetoric of Woodrow Wilson and uh, so on and so forth, would help Iran defend itself against these encroaching empires. Of course, that all changes in 1953 with the coup in Iran. And increasingly, for most Iranians, the U.S. is seen as an imperial power no different to um, uh, Britain and Russia. But anyway, i
0: got to stop there. Right, thank you. Um, just before we thank our speaker, it, um, it's a bit of business. The next uh, Middle East Centre event is on Tuesday, the 21st of October. Another book launch of a superb book by Karen Young on the political economy of the United Arab Emirates. So I would encourage you to come along and hear another academic at the top of the game. But more importantly, I think this was superb. I think this is why I love this job. I can sit and listen to an academic at the top of his game, explain what's driven him for the last five years, and explain to you what is an excellent book. There's only one moment of worry for me, that such a smart academic could have been born in 1979. (laughs) That makes me feel very old, but that's a minor point. We should thank Rohan for a superb evening.